She also told me that she bought pepper spray and like some three-pointed keychains that she was carrying with her at all times because she thought that I wanted to uh, kill her. Don't tell anyone. I said, please don't tell anyone. Don't tell. I said, please don't tell anyone. Please don't tell anyone. Don't tell. I said, please don't tell anyone. I said, please don't tell anyone. Don't tell. Again, Hey guys, before we start this episode, I just wanted to come on and say that the purpose of this podcast is to solely provide people with a platform to share their stories. This is one person's story from one point of view, and I just urge everyone to keep an open mind as they listen. I have a trigger warning in the description. I recommend that you read that before you listen to the episode, as I would hate uh, for you to listen to something that you don't want to listen to. So today's episode is going to be a little different. Um, The interview that you're about to hear actually went three hours long. So in order to keep it cohesive, you will hear me interrupt the storyteller and give a synopsis of what happens next. Everything I say is direct from the interview, pretty much like the SparkNote version, just to take you to a nice landing spot for him to take over again, but to also give you the information you need for the continuation of his story. Hey Molly, I saw your ad about your podcast. I'm currently going through what is objectively the most insane six months of my life. I'm 27, so I thought I'd send a message. The whole odyssey has everything. Romance, deception, pet rats. Yes, you read that right. Very painful for me, but very juicy for hashtag content, I'm sure. Let me know if you want to talk. I'd be cheaper than therapy, so I'm down if you are. Best, Robert. So that's what I know about you. I know you're going through what sounds like hell. Yeah. I don't know what that hell is yet, so I'm just going to hand the mic over to you. Yeah, I'm going through something totally bonkers right now. And uh, like I said in the message, I'm 27, and uh, my ex-girlfriend is actually taking me to court. So she has a host of, uh, and again, I'm still not sure what the right word for the right situation is, but I would call them mental illnesses mm-hmm. slash challenges. So... Uh, like as far as actual diagnoses, she's got autism spectrum disorder. Mm-hmm. Uh, when she was diagnosed, at the time, you could diagnose somebody with uh, Asperger's, mm-hmm. but that's not a thing anymore. Really? Yeah, at I, least to my knowledge. It's like Pluto, just kind of disappeared. It just disappeared. Wow. No more Asperger's. So there's no Bring more geniuses in the world. Yeah. Um, yeah, autism spectrum disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, panic attack disorder, generalized anxiety disorder. Um, PTSD. And, and you've seen symptoms of those things with her? All, okay. all of these things, okay. yeah. So that's kind of one thing I wanted to start with with you is how do you feel is appropriate to talk about someone else's trauma and mental health? It's a really big question because it's something I'm struggling with on this podcast because it's a very fine line of something being my story and being someone else's. Yeah. I find that if I were impacted by it, then I have my story to tell there. Um, but if I'm just telling someone else's shit with no... Yeah, Doesn't uh, connect. Yeah, like if I were just telling a story about like my girlfriend's brother, you know, it would be like that I'd, I I wasn't a part of that story. Yeah. And that's... And it, it's not like she did something because of that that somehow relates yeah, to the Yeah, story. yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like, just like spilling tea, yeah. Okay. Um, I think if you were affected by something, it becomes you have a story there too. There's three stories: your story, their story, then the in between, the 
story of collectively. Our story. Our story. I agree with your take. And it's hard though. It's very, very gray, and I don't know that answer. And I'm struggling. There are topics that I I plan to talk about here on this podcast that I'm still talking to some people behind the scenes about how comfortable they are with me talking about, but that have greatly impacted my life. I think that's the right thing. And if I could ask Patty mm-hmm. what she's comfortable with me talking about, I would, but I actually can't. Does she have a restraining order? Yeah. Against you? Against me. Okay. Wow. Why don't we start from right, the beginning? Right on the nose. Um, when did you meet her? I met her in, actually this time, 2020. So. Okay. Pandemic, or we were getting hot and heavy with COVID then. It was right around that time. We had like a month before COVID set in. Okay. It's all coming. How'd you meet? Hinge. Nice. Yeah. So we had about a month and um, everything was pretty fine. Uh, we had a great first date. Uh, like I said, there were pet rats. So she lived in Murray Hill on 34th Street. I shouldn't say this on the. Podcast. You say whatever you want she about that. She lived in the Murray Hill Marquee. On 34th Street. Okay. It's just like, it's not like you're going to say that to someone and they're going to say, oh, the Murray Hill Marquee. But when you say the name, it just sounds extremely yeah. Murray Hill. Um, yeah. She met me in uh, Dunkin' Donuts, which was in like the ground floor of her building. And we talked for a little bit. She made sure I wasn't uh, like insane. And then we went up to her apartment and she had pet rats. So she had like, your first date, you went up to her apartment. Yeah. You didn't meet at a coffee shop? I mean, you met at Dunkin' Donuts. Dunkin' Donuts, talked oh. for five minutes, and then went up to okay. her apartment. Yeah, weird, right? This sounds like a sex setup. Right. Were you going into it as a sex setup? Like you, no. Okay, you were genuinely looking for a first date. Yeah, I was really looking for a first date. We talked ahead of time. I was like, the conversation was, my picture that she liked on Hinge, I had a dog, and so she mentioned cute the dog was and that she had pets and I said well you know you really can't get to know anybody or your opinion of someone doesn't really matter if your pets don't like them so why don't I meet your pets mm-hmm. uh, not trying to be like a smooth talker and full disclosure I wasn't going into it like a sex setup mm-hmm. like, I didn't I don't really have sex on the first date um, wherever but yeah we just sat in front of her like the cages that they live in and I held a few, and she held them and fed them, and we just talked. And it was actually really uh, peaceful. And Sounds like it. Yeah, I mean, in a fucking talked. weird way of having rats on your first date, that sounds very peaceful and nice. Yeah, like, I, I wasn't phased by the rats, and to this day, I'm like, should I have been phased by that? I don't know. It just seems like a, what's the word? Red flag? <laughs> and she had rats? I don't know. I guess, was it? Do you think that's a red flag? No, listen, we're in New York. People are weird. There's weird. Like, I've fostered 30 dogs in the last year, so. I agree with that. Like, I I think I replied to somebody. That was a lie. I fostered 10 and then 20 cats. Sorry, I just needed to correct that. 30 cats. The record will reflect. So, I need the rats. Uh, Like I said, a few more dates. COVID set in, and we, I'm just really comfortable with this person, which is really easy to talk to. We're talking about, you know, things like honesty in a relationship and boundaries communication um, very transparent yeah just straight up like at this point has she said i have all these diagnosed things it was around that time in late april when we started to see each other again because seeing each other again was sort of an indication that 
I like you enough to where we can go into a global pandemic, not see each other for two months and want to see you again at the end of it. So there's a level of seriousness there. And that's when she started to relay things. So the first thing that she relayed to me was that she is sober. She said that she had a really bad drinking problem in college. And she tells me that her dad actually just became sober too. Um, Yeah, she dated a girl in college. They drank a lot. She went to school in the UK. Very heavy drinking, very prestigious elitist school in the UK, in Scotland. And St. Andrews. And I'm not at liberty to say. And then she starts to tell me things like that. The woman that, I don't know why I keep calling her a girl and her girlfriend a girl. The woman that she dated mm-hmm. um, was abusive with her physically. And that that person also abused hard drugs, like real hard drugs, ketamine, MDMA. All right, so we have a toxic former relationship with a girl. Exactly. Great. So at this time, she kind of drops these bombs over over the period of time where I'm deciding, am I going to be in a relationship with this person, or is this too much? That were you turned off by the trauma? No, but the girl, I, the woman I dated before, the child, the six year old, keep saying girl. <laughs> yeah, uh, the woman that I dated. <laughs> That's a funny way of saying it. Um, the woman that I dated before, Patty, she, we moved to New York together and she immediately got hooked on coke. Okay. So you have your own trauma then with being with people in relationships with addiction. Yeah. And what am I seeing? Okay. You can't choose whether or not you experience trauma, but you choose how you handle it. And just like any other stressor in life, I'm going to judge my partner based on how they handle the stressor and not where it came from, especially if it's not in their control. So I'm seeing her see a therapist. She sees her CBT therapist every week. I'm seeing her see her psychiatrist. She sees her psychiatrist every week. And she's taking her medication, and she's getting it at the right amount, and she's extremely pleasant to be around. Just a very... I have these memories of us in her apartment in Murray Hill, in her bed. Murray Hill Marquee. Murray Hill Marquee. And it's very placid. It's very, like, white, white. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it sounds kind of like this euphoric beginning of dating where you're infatuated and just loving each other. Exactly. So I was really impressed with her ability to kind of relax and be with somebody in that way because not everyone can be vulnerable, especially early in a relationship. You know, there was a day over the summer of 2020 where she came over to, I think it was the Franklin Avenue four stop in Crown Heights. And I picked her up at the train and she was just a little bit, she's just different. She's like, she's manic, right? We're on the trauma podcast. Mm-hmm. So we all know what that means. Erratic, very like eyes darting, but in a happy mood, but in like a scarily happy mood. Mm-hmm. So I kind of, I noted to her, I'm like, Hey, you are acting a little bit different. Um, you're just a little higher than you usually are is everything okay? And she's like, oh yeah, everything's great. I've actually haven't been having to take as much of my medication lately because everything's mm. not so well. And I told her, you know, if I saw behavior in you that was concerning to me, is that something you would want me to let you know? Or would you rather me just try and be around you? And positive Did you say that in that moment? And she says, oh no, let me know. And I said, okay. I'm this seeing is one it right of those now. times, yeah. yeah. And so we went to my apartment and she took more of her medication and then at the end she when she came back to earth so to speak she said uh you know thank you for telling me please if i ever get like that again tell me 
Robert continues to tell us that that summer, Patty has quit pot. The effect on her, he refers to like a leg being ripped out from under a table. She becomes extremely anxious and neurotic. She starts to worry that her brain is going to no longer work based on the amount of weed she has consumed. It's also during this time that he learns of her psychotic episodes that she had back in college and a stay in the hospital for anorexia. Things go even more downhill. She becomes incredibly depressed and develops mysterious stomach pain. At this point, it is September 2021, and Robert and her are living together as he is transitioning to a new apartment. As she starts graduate school, he is only getting glimpses of the woman that he fell in love with. So she starts grad school, and all hell breaks loose. She goes to another level. I've never seen her that kind of. She just gets super anxious, and it starts to come out on me for the first time. Like... I'll have a conversation with her saying, what do you want to do tonight? Do you want to watch a movie? Do you want to go out for dinner? What if we took a walk in this area? And that would be an affront. Like that would become an attack as in, why can't we do what I want to do? Why do we always have to do, why is what I want to do never the right thing? Her doctor prescribes her Adderall. Um, So she's taking Juicebar, Seroquel, Prozac, and then she adds Adderall to the mix. And again, it just absolutely goes bonkers. The anxiety, the concern, out the window. And she starts to become afraid of me. So she starts to text me things like, she, she would start like over-apologizing for stuff, which is a trauma response. Mm-hmm. And I would do my best to quell her, you know, like, hey, I'm not angry with you at all. And... um you don't have to apologize for that. That's okay. It's okay. It's, so there's nothing that would have made her afraid of you. There's no fight. There's no... It's just stress. So the September ends. I move into my new apartment, giving her her space. And the fear, the fear she felt toward me stayed. I was like, okay, look, I got my own apartment now. I'm not going to be in her space anymore. Hopefully that'll help her calm down kind of recalibrate. And if I'm playing armchair psychiatrist, that was a stupid, stupid take because she's she has anxiety. Mm-hmm. Not Obviously, being with you would probably make her think more anxious thoughts. More anxious thoughts because mm-hmm. I'm not there to remind her, like, hey, I'm a normal, well-adjusted man who may, maybe stays in relationships longer than he should. Mm-hmm. I'm really interested in how you said... She would become more scared of me in my absence. Because if, as a, if you're an anxious person, you're not getting the validation every day of, hey, are you mad at me? Are you mad at me? And there's that distance. You're making up a narrative of what is going on. That's just not reality. I really appreciate how clear that is to you and predictable that is because that's not what I thought. Mm-hmm. So I, let, I, I was like, relationship needs space. We've been living together during a very stressful time. Let's separate and kind of decompress. Mm -hmm. And I sit down with her, and it's exactly what you just described. She tells me that she's gotten more scared of me. She's saying, I I cry every night. I'm afraid to introduce you to my friends because because I'm so scared of you. Does she give examples of why she's scared of you, though? That's just it. There are no examples. She says that she's a subject of constant criticism. From you? From me. Here's a good place to kind of park it. For the rest of the story, do you want me to tell you things as they were happening 
Or do you want me to tell you them as I learned about them? Because this is about the part in the story where things were happening that I didn't know at the time. Choose your poison. I don't know. I'm trying to think which one would be more interesting. I think it'd be more interesting if I tell you it as I know, as I find out. Okay, yeah. Patty and Robert are planning to go to a wedding in California and fly out the day after Patty's birthday. But as Patty's birthday approaches, she becomes more and more distant. Robert also claims that it's around this time that she begins to forget entire conversations that they've had. On the night of her birthday, Patty bails on the plans that they had to go get sushi and asks Robert to meet her in Washington Square Park for a talk. So we sit down in the arch. She tells me, I feel smothered, right? I feel controlled. I feel like nothing I do is right. I'm afraid to introduce you to my friends. And I feel like we need, like, a break or something. And I'm like, I hear you. Um, I'm confused because I feel like we kind of have been on a break. You haven't been seeing me. You haven't been texting me. We haven't been making plans. You've been totally on your own. So what do you mean by that? She's saying, I need to, if we go to this wedding together, it's going to break us. I need Uh time away. Like, okay, that's fine too. And she's going on about these pressures that she feels. And eventually I ask her, like, what am I doing to indicate to you that you are so underperforming this relationship? And this is when the walls start coming down. She starts to say, no, actually, I'm doing that to myself, kind of like I referenced earlier. Mm -hmm. I'm seeing it happen, and I'm disappointed. I can tell I'm not doing a good job. And I'm like, okay, well, I want you to know you are. And she's like, no, you're angry at me all the time. You're angry at me right now. And I, it's sort of like a bomb went off because I'm totally there with her. I'm like, this is the woman that I love telling me that I've hurt her in a tremendous way. And that kills me. Mm-hmm. So I'm just trying to listen and hear exactly what I did so that if the relationship is over, I never do it to anyone else. And if the relationship continues, certainly never do it to her again, whatever it is. So I'm intent listening. And she says, you're angry right now. And I just, and that took me by surprise. I was like, she really thinks I'm angry right now. And I'm like, I freeze my face. I try, I'm like, okay, don't move your face. Patty, do I look angry? Yeah, you look angry. And that's when, like, the rug got pulled out from under me. I was like, we have disconnected from reality. Yeah, I mean, you're showing her a color blue and she's saying it's orange. Yeah. I want to have your children. She says that to me. I want to have your children. So we go from the beginning of the conversation, which is... We're breaking up. Yeah. Don't to, have your kids. I'm going to have your kids. I'm confused. The conversation ends, like, very abruptly. She's like, I want to go home. I step away from her, and I create physical distance, and I say, do you want me to come home with you, or do you want me to go to my apartment? I want you to come home with me. Robert and Patty go back to her apartment, and it comes out that she has been missing Prozac doses, including that day. This provides great clarity for Robert, as the effect of skipping a dose of Prozac has massive effects on Patty, to the point where they actually have a rule in their relationship to not have important conversations or fights for 48 hours after she skips a dose. They go to bed that night having decided to go to California together. I think I mentioned earlier, I also take Adderall for my ADD. Mm -hmm. 
So I take it in the morning of the flight. We take a lift together. We get on the plane. I don't eat really anything. I have like the biscuits on the plane. I have like a ginger ale. And we touch down about six hours later. So I take my second dose of Adderall and I tell Patty, hey, when your mom comes to pick us up, I'd really appreciate it if you could kind of voice that we should get some food because if I don't eat, it's not going to be good. So the mother picks us up. Patty voices, hey, can we grab some food? The mother says, no, we have food at home. It's like an hour drive. I say, all right, I can, I can handle this. So we make a stop in town. Basically, Patty's brother had broken up with his girlfriend. One of the Christmas gifts I got the family was a collection of pictures, and the girlfriend was mm. one of the pictures. So I got a new picture printed, and we drove to their house, which is kind of in the, it's like in a remote area, heavily wooded. The reason I bring it up is I haven't eaten. Mm-hmm. I haven't had enough water. The drive is dizzying, and the mom gets me carsick. Um, You're not your best self. I'm not my best self. And, you know, psychologically, especially if you think about how the previous two days have gone, mm-hmm. and the water and the food and this car sickness, and um, we get to their house. And I sit down with uh, the mother gives me half a sandwich, like half a bond meat. I eat that, and the dad is like, hey, you want a shot of whiskey? Like, You're sober. It's like, yeah, but I still have all the alcohol in the house, and it's really good alcohol. I'm not going to get rid of it. Like, Okay, kind of weird. Patty doesn't drink. Mm-hmm. The dad doesn't drink. So it just leaves me and her mom, who mm-hmm. I adore, to, if we wanted to drink. So I was like, all right, I'll have a shot of the whiskey if the mother, which we call her, Deborah. If Debbie has a shot too. So Debbie agrees. I have it. I have the sandwich. I go take a shower and I find out that the mother was so anxious for some reason. I think she at the time was worried that her husband was going to leave her. Mm, okay. the Patty gives her half of some of her anti-anxiety slash anti-psychotic medication. I come out from the shower and um, or before I finish the shower, I tell Patty, I'm in the her room with her. I'm like, hey, this feels really good. Like, we're out in New York. We're here with your family. We spent a lot of time here during COVID initially. So this is like a beautiful place. You know, things feel right. And she's like, she puts her hand on my chest and she says, it's a new chapter. Like, that's a beautiful moment. So I come out from the shower. We sit down for dinner and I see that the mother hasn't had her shot of whiskey. In fact, it's gone. I had mine. And I'm like, that's odd. Why? Why did she agree to have the whiskey and now it's not here? She said she poured it down the drain. Okay, so now I'm the only one here who's had anything to drink. And um, they start talking about Bitcoin, cryptocurrency. And one by one, the mother, Patty, the father, the mother goes, I think it's anarchists trying to topple the government. Patty goes, it's gambling. The dad goes... It's just something that drug dealers and sex traffickers are using to launder money. And I, like, for the record, I'm not like a crypto bro. Mm -hmm. I don't own much cryptocurrency by any standard. But my brother works in blockchain technology. So, like, Dogecoin aside, the technology behind these coins is, like, pretty important and like robust yeah 
And what I'm hearing from them is like essentially conspiracy theories. I start playing whack-a-mole with these different points. The dad brings up a point, I address it. Patty brings up a point, I address it. The mom brings up a point, I address it. And I start to get like caught up in it. And I can't stop talking to these people about their points. I can't stop myself from debating them. Mm -hmm. And tell me if you've ever experienced this. I start to feel like the part of my brain that controls what I say and what I do with my hands starts to kind of go further and further back, like away from my body. Have you ever had that? No, I've never experienced that. Little did I know what I was experiencing is like a form of a psychotic break. Yeah. So I'm losing control of myself and falling further and further into this debate that I'm having with the family. And before I know it, I've totally gone way too far. The chemistry of what was happening is that I basically went from being perfectly sober to very drunk. In one shot? Because of the way that the alcohol combines with the Adderall. And no food. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No food, very little water, very little sleep. It was just, and I don't really drink as it is. Yeah, perfect storm. I'm going between periods of like lucidity and control. So I have a minute where I'm like, okay, I don't really know what's going on, but I got to talk one-on-one with Patty. Mm -hmm. I go into her room, try and talk. She just keeps debating me, though. I'm like trying to find some common ground about the points that we're making. You know, like, okay, there are drug dealers Mm -hmm. who use cryptocurrency, but that doesn't mean that the cryptocurrency exists for drug dealers. You're still having the crypto conversation. That's just it. I want to wind it down by just saying, like, look, you might think that, Mm -hmm. I might think this, but fundamentally we are on the same page, right? Can't even get there. More debate, more debate. She goes to leave. I, like, turn toward her. And I uh, put my hands on her hands. Oops, sorry. Put my okay. hands on her hands. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, they're in front of her navel. And it's sort of this, like, I'm sitting, she's standing. It's like a begging, like, mm-hmm. please don't go. Like, I don't really understand what's going on right now. She leaves the room. I go into the living room. I try and talk to her. She's in the laundry room. I go and talk to her parents. And I'm like, hey, I have to leave. Mm-hmm. I tell them, look, I don't understand what's going on. Very sorry. Thank you for all your hospitality. For the entire time that I've known you, I have to go. I have a cousin who lives in the city. Mm-hmm. I think I can call him and we'll figure it out. The mother says, go. No, no, no. Just stay stay here. Something's not, not okay. Just stay here. Stay the night. We'll figure this out in the morning. You just got worked up. Everyone gets like that sometimes. And the dad is like, yeah, I've gotten like that before. Okay. The mom, probably more reassuring than the dad, considering the dad's the abusive alcoholic. I'm like, okay, I guess so. I guess I can sleep with that. They make up the bed for me in the living room. I try and talk to Isabel. She's like, anything you want to say to me, you can say here. I tell her like, hey, I feel the way I felt in the conversation. I said I felt belittled and condescended towards and like I wasn't being listened to and that she makes me feel that way a lot. Um, Not heard. So Obviously, she refutes that, and I'm talking about that with her in front of her parents. I'm like, I'm not gonna, mm-hmm. I'm not gonna roast you like in front of your parents here. Like, if we want to have a relationship conversation, we can have that another time. 
The mom's like, yeah, you guys just need to talk. Just talk in the morning. And then the mom and Patty and the dad just sit there with me. And it was in the moment where I told Patty that I saw her smirk at me at the dinner table. The mother says, I didn't see a smirk. And that's when I, looking back, that's when I really started to like realize something had happened. Because I was like, am I seeing things that are not real? Like, mm-hmm. did I see her face contort in a way that she wasn't doing it? That sort of shocks me because I really trust her mom. And that's when I tell them, like, hey, something's happening. I think I'm having an interaction between my medication and alcohol. Mm-hmm. or I don't know what's going on, but something's not okay. I'm going to talk to my psychiatrist tomorrow. And uh, they just sort of, they walk me through some box breathing. They put a blanket around me. They give me water. And I'm just in shock because I've never, like you said, you've never had anything like that before. I'd never had anything like that before. Like, I've taken psychedelics, Mm -hmm. but I know I'm taking psychedelics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was like uh, watching someone kind of like put a fish hook in the back of my skull and pull my like sphere of consciousness out of my body. Yeah. And watching myself like make a total ass of myself at the dinner table. I woke up the next morning and I was like, all right, let's have this conversation. Mom said we should talk in the morning. Patty said we'll talk in the morning. Let's talk. The dad comes in. He's fired up about some Zoom call he has. He kicks the brother out of the brother's room because that's where he needs to have his Zoom call. So the brother's in the living room. Then Patty comes out into the living room. She won't make eye contact with me. She's like, pack your bags. Uh, We're going to drive you into town and talk in town. Like, okay, pack my bags to talk. Whatever. I'm like, I've clearly made these people uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable. Yeah, you want to leave. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so they drive me into town and again, it's the same thing. It's like the mom and Patty are in the front seat of the car. They're just making small talk. talk. Yeah. I'm like, this is weird. Like no one's acknowledging what happened. Mm -hmm. No one's saying anything like, Hey, did you talk to your psychiatrist? What happened last night? Nothing. No acknowledgement whatsoever. I get into town or we're on the way to town and I just look at them from the back seat and I'm like, what is happening? And the mother, the mother says nothing, and Patty says in this way, this is exactly how she says it, oh, you're leaving. I'm on the West Coast. I've already messaged my psychiatrist, who's uh-huh. already responded and said, yeah, you combined alcohol and Adderall with an empty stomach and no water and you don't drink? That's extremely dangerous. I'm like, I talked to this person already. I'm explaining to them in the car, like, this was a medical event. Uh-huh. I am very sorry for what happened. Uh, I understand if I need to leave, but do we not want to have any sort of conversation? We get into town. The daughter takes my stuff out of the back seat, puts it on the ground. And she's like, oh, no, this is actually another event in a long list of abusive behavior. Um, talk to your psychiatrist. We'll talk when you're back. I send her an apology, you know, because I'm still trying to figure out what happened. And then she sends me a message that's like, this whole time this was you. And it's three Healthline articles that are, the first one is something about emotional blackmail. The second one is about, I think, sexual coercion. And the third one was about like manipulation and abuse. 
and I get them and I get them the night that I fly in back to New York and I'm sitting in my living room and I just respond. I'm like, Hey, uh, I'll, I'll read these tomorrow. Everyone talks about the position where you are the victim of abuse mm-hmm. and that should be discussed. And here I am being called the abuser and I'm asking myself, what is the right thing to do? I should believe her, which is why I've read the articles and self-examined and brought them to my therapist. At the same time, it's like, does that is that is that the judge, jury, executioner of this matter now? Like, if she sends a Healthline article saying those things and says, this is you, is that me? Robert reaches out to Patty multiple times for them to talk in person, but she says that she needs time and space. Patty agrees she will talk to Robert after he returns from a trip down south visiting his brother. Leading up to his return to New York, he reaches out to Patty, but hears no reply. Before taking off, Robert messages one of Patty's friends on Instagram. He describes his effort as him beginning to worry and wanting to make sure that at least someone has heard from her. When the flight lands, he checks his Instagram DMs and the message was read, but with no reply. Robert then decides to go over to Patty's apartment. I go to her apartment and I knock on her door. She doesn't answer. That's concerning. I'm on my way out of the building and I see Patty tagging her key to get in. We lock eyes and she bolts. She runs away. So I walk out and I turn down the direction where she went. And I'm going, what's going on? Calling out to her, Patty. Hey, what is happening? Yeah. She turns around. She like whips around and she's got pepper spray in her hand. And I put my hands up and I just walk back as fast as I can. And uh, these two guys in suits get out from a black car, from two black cars and flank her. They like create like a human shield around her. And I'm like, I'm already halfway up the block. I'm like, it's one of those moments where like, are they protecting her from me? One of them comes over and he's like, hey, she called the cops. You should leave. Like, she's my girlfriend. She has a bunch of mental illnesses. She's going through something. He's like, you should just get out of here. Was he a PI or? That's the thing. I asked him. I was like, are you guys bodyguards? Yeah. Did she hire you? He said we work for the building. What? Yeah. I didn't press him. Right. But if I had, it probably would have been what building. Yeah. A few days go by. I don't hear from her. I'm freaking out. I talked to my therapist the next day, and he says, oh, yeah, if she has a mood disorder and she's on Adderall and Prozac at the same time, she's going to enter a, a manic spiral. He's mm-hmm. like, that is what will happen. Fact. Guaranteed. So I sent a message to her parents. I'm like, hey, I'm really worried. Uh, you know, Patty, there was no conversation when we got back to New York after what happened in California. She hasn't broken up with me. There's actually been no communication. And on Wednesday night, she tried or almost pepper sprayed me. Yeah. Um, you know, you should. I told her, I told them about the combination of medications. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did they reply to all this? They didn't. Okay. So they did not reply at all. I get a message from her a few days later. Patty. She, Patty. Patty messages me and she says, first of all, If you want the possibility of being in my life, contact me and no one else. And I remember the moment where I put my hands on her on her way out of the room. You know how I said Mm -hmm. it was like a begging gesture? Yeah. So up until around that point, 
I had thought there was no physical contact. Mm-hmm. I was blackout, right? So the memories were coming back to me. Or blackout's a strong word, but I was very drunk and that was hazy. And obviously it's like a very traumatic kind of moment. Mm-hmm. So I think I'd been blacking it out, blocking it out. I messaged her like, hey, did I put my hands on you that night? I had a memory come back to me that I did. She says, yes, you did put your hands on me. This is the part where I find out what was actually happening from her point of view. So the night of that, let's call it an episode, the night of that fight, um, she claims that her parents were placating me. You know when they said, this happens to everyone, this has happened to me before? She thinks that her parents were terrified and that they were just saying that to calm me down because they thought I was going to be violent. She says that in the time when I went into her room, waiting for her brother to get back from downtown or whatever, she, she says that uh, she hid all the knives in the house. She says that she got rid of all the sharp objects and that no one, she says no one slept that night. She says she didn't sleep that night and that her family was praying and that... Uh, Even though you had said, I would like to leave, and they were the ones to say, stay. That's a salient point, Molly. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's statistic. How does she remember that moment of your hands? So there, that's a complicated answer because, so at the time, she remembers it as me putting my hands on her and her running away. That's how she said it to me in text. I have that at two points, screenshots of that account. Just to kind of look forward, since that was a very acute question, mm-hmm. that changes. Yeah. Her perception changes multiple times. She also tells me that, you know how I was worried that she hadn't been responding to my messages? Mm-hmm. That's why I went over to check on her. Well, she tells me she's been catatonic for two weeks that she hadn't been eating. Her friend was going to was having to come over and help her eat. She told me that she hadn't turned in any assignments, and that she'd been having panic attacks. She also told me that she bought pepper spray and like some three-pointed keychains that she was carrying with her at all times because she thought that I wanted to uh, kill her. So I tell her, first of all, I was like, look, I can share my Google location with you right now. So you can log onto your phone anytime and you'll see exactly where I am. I'm not stalking you or whatever. Uh, second of all, I would never have gone over to your apartment to check on you if I'd known that you were having this like, huge fear of me. Mm-hmm. I thought something was wrong and something was wrong. But, you know, your parents told me this happens to everyone and it's happened to me before, quote unquote. So that became my reality. Like, that's feedback from sober people on a situation. I'm going to trust them. And third, I was like, look, (laughs) I need to talk to my psychiatrist. If you really felt that way, would you be willing to to give an account, you know, to tell her what you experienced? Because obviously, according to you, what I did is not what I thought I did. And um, she says, yes, you know, I will talk to a psychiatrist And she says, you know, if you want to talk about being together, I need some time. As Robert searches for answers as to what really happened that night in California, he invites Patty to a session with his psychiatrist to give her account of that night. Patty had asked Robert to bring a bag of her things to the appointment, but Patty never shows up. 
I mean, I have her shit. So I go to her apartment. I ring her bell. She doesn't answer. Like, Why aren't you breaking up with her? Why are you hanging in this at this point? That's a good question. Why am I not breaking up with her? I feel like I made a mistake and that I should own up to it. I don't feel like we should or shouldn't stay together. I think that's something we should talk about. Yeah, it's like not even about that anymore. It's just about you've kind of been accused of something. Yeah. And and you want to make that right before you get out. I've been accused of abuse, yeah. harassment, stalking. Sexual coercion. Yeah. Murder so, almost. I'm like, yo, the way I see it, we can break up. Yeah. But there's actually a step before that, which is sitting down and you seeing me in the flesh, like, and demonstrating to you that I'm not a murderous sociopath. Like, we should establish that and then talk about a relationship. Yeah. I mean, I guess at this point, I'm just kind of like, why are you even involving yourself? So the next day, I gave her 24 hours. The next day, I sent her a message. I said, hey. Basically, the, it was, uh, I don't know you well enough to help you in the ways you need. I have to walk away. Yeah. I told her, and this probably answers your question about why I was staying in the relationship. I, was trying, I wasn't trying to stay in the relationship, but I was trying to process and deal with what happened in a way that would leave roads back to her if that was an option. Because there's things I could have done to sever it entirely, right? Mm-hmm. Just walk away. But there's also ways of healing that would have been better for both of us. Yeah, getting closure in some ways together. Yeah, so that's what I was trying to do. But on Sunday, I messaged her. I was like, look, I've been trying to do that. That's obviously not going to work. It's not going to work. Goodbye. An hour later, I get a message from her. And it goes, I was lying the whole time. It was all a lie just to protect my family because you went to kill them. You are a sociopath. You have been lying to your doctors and to your therapists. And you hit me on the night of that episode. She said, you hit me, and when I wouldn't tell you, you were right. You hit me. And at this point, I've done the trauma therapy. I've done the EMDR, a lot of it. And that was the therapist who was going to meet with us on the 18th. And I've done CBT therapy. And I've been sober, clean, like totally sober for, what, a little over a month? I know what happened that night. Like, it was money because it was a traumatic event, but I've recovered the actual events. And, like I said, on the night of uh, November 13th, she said explicitly, twice, you put your hands on me and I ran away. Why does she think you lied to your doctors and your psychiatrist? So, she doesn't give that answer. Okay. Because I was going to say, there's a lot of accusations there that aren't involving that night, you know? Yes. So... If she wanted to be honest with my psychiatrist or my therapist, as she saw it, she had that opportunity. I would assume somebody who's abusive would want the person who they abused to only speak with their healthcare practitioner in their presence, mm-hmm. lest they say, this guy's abusive. I made a point to not do that. I said, look, my psychiatrist will talk with you one-on-one. Both my therapists will talk with you one-on-one. You can tell them whatever you want. And that's what I wanted. I was like, if this is really what I think it is, not the hitting, but if that night was really so crazy, I need someone to share with them what really happened in an open forum where they can be as 
honest as possible. And if, if me being there is going to make them feel like they can't say things and they need to pad their language, then I don't want to be there for my own healing. So I say nothing, and I send it to my therapists, and I talk to one of them the next day, and he's like, look, she has a lot of mental illnesses right now. She's clearly going through a break with reality. Just leave it. So I leave it for about 10 days. And then I'm home with my family one night, and I just can't do it anymore. I can't deal with the fact that this woman is going through her life genuinely of the belief that I hit her. But she's and, never not going to think that. Well, you have to understand that I didn't get that. Yeah. Denver. But looking back, do you regret reaching back out or whatever you're about to say you did? Um, I don't regret it, actually. But here's why. I sent her a message, and it was a screenshot of her message to me in November where mm -hmm. she said that the friend who had been coming over to feed her was aware and telling her, hey, this is not Robert. This mm -hmm. is actually your trauma from the ex yeah. that abused you. Um, so I sent that back to her. I said, hey, you said this in November. I don't know what's going on, but you have to understand somewhere that I didn't hit you. I just want you to live your life in peace and know that I mean no harm. She freaks out, you know. Before the conversation ends, she says, my mom was so scared. She called your dad the other day. This is at like one in the morning. So I nudge my dad and I'm like, hey, did you get a, did you get a call from uh, Patty's mom? He's like, how do you know that? Like, what do you mean, how do I know that? How long ago did she talk to you? It's like, it was a week ago. She said that she was really concerned, that her daughter was really scared, and that she wanted to make sure that I was, that you, Robert, were, like, walking away or whatever. And I'm like, Dad, why would you not tell me that you yeah. said that? Here's some other things. So the mother did say that she felt that I was threatening that night of my episode. She also said that Patty had tried to break up with me multiple times and that I would not let her. She also said that Patty broke up with me the night of her birthday, the night of the conversation in Washington Square Park where she said, I want to have your children. Mm -hmm. The mother claims that that was a breakup. Why would you have come to California if that was a breakup? Get this. The mother didn't know I was coming to California. The mother drives to the pickup terminal of the airport and sees me there. And that's the first time that she had any idea that I was anywhere near this. She thought that her daughter had broken up with me and I wasn't coming. So while I'm picking up that photo in the drugstore, her and her daughter are talking in the car. And the mother asks Patty, why is Robert here? And Patty says, I don't know. He just showed up. He just showed up at the airport. So that entire episode, then that night, isn't it curious that the mother and the daughter drove me into town while the dad had a Zoom call? Isn't it curious that the violent, scary man was brought into town by the two most fragile people in the home? The mother was under the impression that I was a crazy man who had forced his way out to California into their home. Mm -hmm. The parents are buying everything that she's telling them. So what's to stop them from buying her telling them that I hit her, that I'm an abuser? 
that's when I called a lawyer. At this point, does she have a formal restraining order? Okay. No. So you call a lawyer first. I call a lawyer first and I say, hey, here's what's going on. The parents are in total denial about her mental illness. Mm -hmm. And there doesn't seem to be any stopping her. He said, look, you're within your rights to contact her therapist and her psychiatrist out of concern. But beyond that, really nothing. Like, okay, well, you know, she did tell me to do that if things got bad. So I would call this pretty bad. I called the, I contact them both. The mom calls me on January 5th. I'm in the car with my parents coming back from visiting family down south. And the mom is like, frantic. She's like, you need to leave her alone. You need to stay out of her life. And I'm like, Debbie, do you know that your daughter thinks that I hit her? Do you know that she said that? Do you know that she thinks that? And she laughs. She says, give me a break. Just leave her alone. So I text her afterwards. I'm like, hey, the call dropped. Just to be totally clear, I'm not a threat to you or your daughter. I'm not going to contact you guys anymore. And I text her the just the details. Like, here's the lift receipt that we took together on the morning of the, the flight to California, you know. Here's a message between us from, like, December where Patty said she wanted to come to therapy. Why would she tell me to bring her things to therapy if she had no intention of coming? That was the 8th. And then on the 11th, Patty goes forward with the restraining order. She sent it to my dad on Telegram. You know Telegram? No. It's like WhatsApp. Okay. And the thing is there's three parts to a restraining order or an order of protection. The summons which tells you you got to come to court for your hearing and that you've been served. The petition, which is the part that the person actually filled out to get the restraining order, or the temporary one. And the third part is the ex parte part, which is basically means that there's a temporary order of protection in place until you can go to your hearing and they can decide whether mm-hmm. or not it's valid. So she only sent the ex parte part to my dad, which means I was under no obligation to adhere to the restraining order. Obviously, I've stepped away entirely, so I didn't violate it anyway. And then on the 25th, he calls the parents. Patty's been feeding them a narrative that I have continued to try and contact her. The daughter actually becomes more irate and formally serves me with the documents. So now the temporary restraining order is legit. And she sends it to my dad. Mm -hmm. The weird thing is, because she served me with the full document, you get to see the petition that she filled out. So she filled out, she says, now it's, uh, he hit me, and when he tried to hit me again, I I got away. She also says that I was harassing her at 1 p.m. on December 18th, the exact time that our therapy appointment was. So she's accusing me of being at her apartment building, like, doing something at the one time where she knows that I wasn't there. She checks off eight boxes. I can't even list them all for you, but it's attempted assault, sexual misconduct, harassment, uh, menacing, um, another kind of sexual abuse, inappropriate touching. She checked off like almost every box. So when's the court date? March 11th. 
and what and you have a lawyer yeah what are you afraid of here so what evidence are you afraid that she will have because from everything you've said in the last two hours and 40 minutes damn there is what do you have to be afraid of I understand that the general situation is very scary. Going to court with a restraining order against you for a lot of abuse and violent things that you've been gaslit into thinking. But you're innocent until proven guilty. What would make you guilty? What happens if I win? What happens if the person who believes that I am out to murder them tries to file an order of protection and gets beaten by the sociopath, what are they going to resort to next? Well, who knows what they'll resort to, but you need to get the fuck out of their lives. Yeah, exactly. But that's the thing with this kind of behavior is that, you know, notice... Then you would file a restraining order the opposite way. I mean, you're... that's what I'm doing with my lawyer right now. Yeah. It's called a cross petition. Yeah. And on top of that, there is the whole scenario, right? So there's addressing the actual restraining order... That needs to go away. There can't be any record that I was ever violent with Mm -hmm. anyone. And then there's the fact that she has done this. Mm -hmm. Like the fact that she has filed a false restraining order with evidence that doesn't exist, accusing me of things that... And she's going to be paying legal fees, her family. I don't think she has a lawyer. Well, she'll get one if you cross whatever you just said. Yeah, if I cross petition, she will lawyer up probably. So I'm holding off on the cross petition because I want to see what happens and if she has a lawyer or not. I don't want to reveal. Does your lawyer feel that that's the right move? Okay. Yeah, I don't know anything in this regard. So I don't want to reveal that I have a lawyer until it's the opportune time. Until I, until she doesn't have enough time to actually enlist a lawyer of her own. If I'm trying to win, I would proceed. Whether or not what I'm about to say is true under the assumption that she has a lawyer. Oh, okay. Because if she if she has rich parents, you have a lawyer. Yeah. Why the fuck wouldn't she get a lawyer? If she's feeling threatened for her life, why wouldn't she have a lawyer? There's no lawyer attached to the petition. That was and a month ago. That was a month ago. And here's the thing. When you serve somebody mm-hmm. with an order of protection or whatever, the summons... You're supposed to go online and submit what's called an affidavit of service, mm-hmm. certifying that they were given notice. If she had a lawyer, they would obviously have her do that. That's standard practice, right? Hasn't been done yet. And there's a record. I, okay. I, have, I have like a notification. I don't know why that. they wouldn't have gotten a lawyer, is what I'm wondering. The parents and the daughter have the same thing in common, which is that they engage with subjects, mm-hmm. people, enough in order to get what they think they need from that thing, but never any further. So she'll engage with the legal process enough to where she'll be able to get temporary Mm -hmm. order protection. But she won't go any further. She won't get a lawyer. She won't make sure she did the affidavit of service. The only reason she actually served me formally was because my dad on the call with her parents said, hey, you know, this isn't really effective unless she serves him, right? Yeah. And then what do you know? She served me. So... It's avoidance, really. That's the key theme. I don't know. What do you think, avoidance? Uh, I don't think that's the key theme of this whole story. I oh, think. no, 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 no. What is the, the key theme is... Codependency, codependency and mental illness. and Adderall. Yeah. We'll end with that. Yeah. 
Well, thank you for telling the story. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and follow the podcast wherever it is you listen to it so that we can bring you more unexpected stories by ordinary people. And if you don't like the episode, forget what I just said and just please don't tell anyone.